You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew. And you can use the Bible that's there in the pew and not just use it, take it if you need a Bible. If you're using a phone or a tablet, you use the Version Bible app. Follow those instructions. It'll take you right to where we're going to be this morning. We're in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. I mentioned this last week if you weren't with us, but for most of the rest of the world, Christmas is but a distant memory, especially by this point. <laughs> and apparently it's going out for us too. That was crazy. That was like Boom. But as you can see, within the Christian tradition, at least for the last 1,500 years, the celebration continues beyond December 25th for at least 12 days. The end point of each annual observance of Christmas in the church is a 12th day, the 12th day that's called Epiphany. And that's what today is. Today is Epiphany Sunday. And the word Epiphany comes from the Greek. It means manifestation or showing forth. And What we talk about on Epiphany, what Epiphany is about, this last day of celebrating Christmas for 12 days, it's distinct from and yet related to Christmas. Christmas is about what happened in Bethlehem. Christmas focuses on the birth of Christ. Epiphany is connected to that, but Epiphany is about celebrating the revelation that comes from that birth, the glory of God revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. Epiphany reminds us the gift of Christmas is one that continues to be unveiled to us And beckons us, therefore, deeper into this beautiful mystery of what we call the incarnation. Now, on Epiphany, there are many different ways of acknowledging the glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ. There's There's many different manifestations of who Jesus is, this revelation in the scriptures. Um, And so there's several stories that on on an Epiphany Sunday you might hear talked about. One, uh, which you can kind of see right here, is the coming of the wise men from the east to worship Christ shortly after his birth. That's an acknowledgement of this is, of who is this? This child is divine. This child is the king of kings. Then there's also the story of Jesus as a young lad. You might remember this in the temple, amazing the teachers and the scribes with his knowledge and understanding of the Torah, the word of God, the law of God. There's other miracle stories, specific ones that are very distinctive in that you know, sort of think of the calming of the storm where the disciples go, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? That again, point to this revelation of the glory of God revealed in the person of Christ. And then there's our story, the fo- story of our focus today, which is when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John. By now, you have your Bibles open to that in Matthew 3, and I'd like you to hear Matthew's account of this moment in Scripture. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it reads, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to consider this defining moment, this epiphany of when Jesus was baptized by John, when the voice of heaven declared, as you heard, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We're going to consider this story through the lens of one final Christmas carol. And if you haven't been with us from Advent all the way through the 12 days of Christmas, this year we've been looking at different Christmas carols as a way of getting behind, getting deeper into the true meaning of the story of Christmas, of what happened at Christmas. So we're going to consider this story through one final carol, and the song of focus this morning is going to be Go Tell It on the Mountain. Go Tell It on the Mountain, an African-American spiritual that dates back at least to 1865. And when I say it to at least 1865, the thing is the authors of these spirituals are not known because these were spontaneous, unwritten songs that came from the population of enslaved African-Americans. So we know it goes as far back as 1865, but it may go even deeper and farther back than that. Many of these spirituals, whether they were composed as group improvisations or by individuals, are believed to have had a double meaning as well. Whether they were hiding messages about the longing for freedom from slavery or even in some cases having descriptions and instructions for finding the Underground Railroad that was active at that time. These songs of worship and hope including Tell It on the Mountain, Go Tell It on the Mountain, would have been lost to history if not for the dedicated work of three generations of members of the Work family. Three generations. Soon after the Civil War, John Wesley Work, an African-American church choir director and former Kentucky slave, dedicated himself to documenting the songs his ancestors sang during their days of slavery. His particular focus was to help future generations to understand and appreciate the importance of spirituality, specifically living out the story of the gospel. And Work was blessed to have in his church choir members of the Jubilee Singers from nearby Fisk University. And if you've never heard of Fisk University, Fisk University was founded by Christian missionaries for the education of freed slaves And it opened in Nashville, Tennessee in 1866 as the first American university to offer a liberal arts education to young men and women irrespective of color. Five years later, however, the school found itself in dire financial straits. So taking the entire contents of the school treasury, the university treasury, with them for travel expenses, the Fisk Jubilee Singers set out on a difficult but ultimately successful 18-month tour to save their school. The day they left campus, October 6th, 1871, is still annually celebrated by Fisk as Jubilee Day. John Work started this cataloging and and documenting of these African-American spirituals so they would not be lost to history. Thankfully, his son, John Work II, also had this same passion for music and history. John Work II was first a student at Fisk and later became a professor, and along with his uncle Frederick, continued to collect and preserve African-American spirituals. Go Tell It on the Mountain was added to the Fisk Jubilee Singers repertoire at this time. By the end of the 19th century, just so you can appreciate how impactful they were, the Fisk Jubilee Singers, by the end of the 19th century, had sung with D.L. Moody's Crusades, at Spurgeon's Tabernacle, and before Queen Victoria and the Prince of Wales. The Fisk Jubilee Singers, along with the Work family, are credited for popularizing these before-unknown and previously unheard African-American spirituals all over the world. 
Now, before I go on with just the third generation of history in, this, in, this, in, these, in these songs and in this particular piece, I want you to recognize something that maybe didn't occur to you. Given that spirituals like Go Tell It on the Mountain first derived from oral tradition, as I mentioned, the wording of these songs vary from version to version in terms of their dialect and even the spelling of words. So, for example, the earliest version of this spiritual, Go Tell It on the Mountain, as it first appeared in print in 1909 with the heading, The Christmas Plantation Song, was worded this way. When I was a seeker, I sought both night and day. I asked the Lord to help me, and he showed me the way. He made me a watchman upon the city wall, and if I am a Christian, I am the least of all. Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. So just to appreciate the variance in different versions and in trying to catalog and record these for history. And and so to, to conclude this story, amazingly, like his father and his grandfather, John worked the third, who was a graduate of Juilliard, continued to, to uncover and to save unknown spirituals. Many times he dedicated his life to this. He traveled hundreds of miles to seek out elderly slaves who had sung them. And in the midst of the Great Depression, Work the Third took another look at what his uncle and father had done with Go Tell It on the Mountain. Through their notes and arrangements, as well as the materials he had dug up through interviews and his research, he reworked the song one more time, creating a new arrangement and adding at least one new stanza. Now, it's not known if Work composed these new lyrics or simply found them during his research, but here's what you need to know. John III's arrangement is the one that we know and sing today. So whenever you hear Go Tell It on the Mountain, that's three generations' work worth of preserving, researching, uncovering one of the great African-American spirituals. And Go Tell It on the Mountain, like all other carols of the season, shares the Christmas story. But as we've discovered through this series... Each Christmas carol has a way of calling specific attention to some aspect of the Christmas story. And this carol is no different. The chorus of Go Tell It on the Mountain wants us specifically to reflect and celebrate something particular about the whole of the Christmas story. And if by now, in just giving you the history, you're at least thinking of Go Tell It on the Mountain, you're maybe remembering some of the words, what might the message be of this beloved spiritual? The chorus is always the key. And the message of Go Tell It on the Mountain is simply and profoundly this. God has shown up. God has shown up. God is with us and for us through the birth of Christ. Now, I know you've heard this before, I'm not sharing anything that's new. You hear this a lot in sermons I've preached in other contexts, this idea of God with us and for us in Christ. But my hope today is from the perspective of those who first gave voice to this song, we might gain a deeper appreciation of the significance of this declaration, of the incarnation of God with us and for us in Christ. And to kind of move in that direction, I'm going to pose a question to you that probably is going to make some of us uncomfortable, but it is what it is. And the question is this, why would a slave want to sing a song about Christianity? Why would a slave want to sing a song about Christianity? And what I mean is, part of the checkered and shameful past of our nation is that much of it has been built on the back of slaves. People of color, violently and unjustly stolen from their home countries, and forcibly sold into bondage by merchants and owners who profess to be 
Christians. African enslavement was the most enthusiastically practiced and defended, remember, in the Bible belt of the South. So-called followers of Jesus oppressed the slaves they claimed to own by quoting Bible verses taken out of context like, slaves, obey your masters. So given all of this, why would slaves sing songs about a faith that seemingly justified their enslavement? Here's why. Even though these slaves heard the same Bible stories as their oppressors, they understood something vital, transformative that their owners did not. Carefully listening even as they served, paying closer attention waiting outside the church than those who were inside, cobbling together and memorizing scraps of scripture, they recognized that God is consistently and always on the side of the persecuted, the victimized, the unjustly treated, the alienated. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, even Israel, When Israel abused her power, the Lord stood against them all. God remains on the side of the downtrodden. With this in mind, they realized the coming of Jesus meant something even better. God didn't just side with those in bondage. In Christ, through Jesus, God personally identified with those who were in slavery. God in Christ, through Jesus, had come to set those in captivity free. When Jesus spoke of being the one who was anointed to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, to let the oppressed go free, they heard the voice of God speaking to them. Careful here. They heard the voice of God speaking to them, meaning they didn't hear the voice of God speaking through Jesus. They heard the very miracle of the word of God in bones of our bones and flesh of our flesh, visible to human eyes, tangible to human touch, and audible to human ears. God had shown up for them. This deeper appreciation of the incarnation, this acute sense of the actual physical presence of God with and for them through Jesus resulted in these great spirituals like Go Tell It on the Mountain expressing what scholars who've studied them call the eternal now. They all have in this evoke the sense of the eternal now. And what that means is to the slave who first sang these songs, who heard and believed the gospel, the narrative of the Bible was not only a chronicle of the past, of history some 2,000 years ago, for them, this story was happening now. The same conflict of good versus versus evil, the same tension between righteousness and wrong were taking place now in the next plantation, in the next country, in the next town. Despite the brutality and cruelty of slavery, the same promises of justice, the same good news of freedom was being held out now in the present, not merely in the life to come. What the voices that first bellowed go tell it on the mountain declare is their awareness that the birth of Jesus is the turning point of history. In the humble arrival of Christ, as the sacred pierced the profane, was the beginning of the end of all bondage and oppression. For those who lived in chains, 
the presence of God in Christ removed the question of if slavery would end and turned it into a declaration of when. And therefore, this good news, this gospel demanded to be shouted from the mountaintops, over the hills, and everywhere. Beloved, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to have this same sense of the eternal now in our understanding of the gospel as initiated by the Christmas story? What would it look like for us to to live in that sense of the eternal now? I mean, part of the reason I think we don't is because as modern Christians, I mean, if we're honest, as modern Christians, we tend to be more Easter than Christmas people. We tend to be more Easter than Christmas people, right? For most of us, Christmas is great. It's great and all, but there's, it's really nothing more, Christmas, than the coming attractions for the feature presentation, right? Of the cross and the resurrection. When Jesus dies for our sins and then rises from the grave and conquers death. But songs like Go Tell It on the Mountain remind us the birth of Jesus isn't just a sneak preview, the teaser for a later story. The incarnation is part of the gospel story, the beginning of the main event. Beloved, the starting point of our salvation is not the cross. The starting point of our salvation is our creator, our God, manifest in human life through the person of Jesus, informing, restoring, and transforming it by the grace and truth he brings. It's no small thing. It's no mere preamble for God to become human, to identify with us, to stand in solidarity with us. This is the shock and awe of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River by John. As described in the Gospels, all of them, remember, John is performing a baptism of repentance. Let's think about that for a second. John's performing a baptism of repentance. What does that mean? John's baptism, in other words, is a confession of the unrighteousness of humanity, that apart from God, we have no true life or glory. John's baptism is an acknowledgement that apart from the Lord, we can do nothing that lasts, and therefore, apart from God, we are nothing. Our lives are but a brief breath, a vapor, a fleeting memory, as all we achieve and amass passes away when we die. And so John's baptism is also an expression of the desire to turn around, to come back and follow the way of the Lord. In other words, John's baptism is an action to be taken by sinners, John's baptism is an action to be taken by sinners. This is why John, at first, challenges Jesus' request to be baptized by him. John says, this is backwards. (laughs) It should be the other way around. You, Jesus, God come down in the flesh. You should be baptizing me. You should be baptizing us. Do you ever ask yourself why Jesus chooses to be baptized? Do you ever ask yourself why Jesus chooses to be baptized? I know many of you know the Sunday school answer. I know many of you can quote to me that what Jesus says here, John, no, we need to do this because this is good. This will fulfill all righteousness. Does anyone really know what that means? We all just go, yeah, mm, right, right. What the heck's he talking about? What is it? I mean, what right? What is it? What's going on here? Do you ever get beyond that? Do you think beyond that? Do you go, I don't get it. I mean, if you were there, I'd be raising my hands. I'm sorry. I'm really not clear on what that means. Do we ask why 
did Jesus choose to be baptized? I mean, if you think about it, Jesus didn't have to, right? I mean, he, think about it. He could have come and done everything he did all the way to the cross and beyond and not have been baptized, couldn't he? I mean, Jesus tells us he had to do this. But I'm pushing you, why? What's going on here? What is Jesus doing here? What's the epiphany? What's the revelation of this moment? Here it is. The real epiphany of Christmas revealed here is discovering the Lord's identification with us is not just becoming one of us. Not just becoming one of us, being born human. The real epiphany of Christmas revealed here is that the Lord's identification goes even so far as to embrace our broken, sinful, and therefore mortal human nature. Before the cross, from the very beginning of his ministry, God in Christ took on our human nature. We often talk about, well, when Jesus went on the cross, he took upon himself all of our sin. He took it on way before the cross. He took it on the moment he was baptized into a baptism of repentance and a baptism for sinners. He took our broken, sinful, mortal human nature upon himself. Jesus was baptized into it. He embraced all of it to fully heal and totally transform it through his perfect, holy, and unstained character. The work of the cross is the culmination of this effort. But the start of it all is here as God in Christ completely identifies with us. The magnum opus of the gospel is how Jesus carries this union of human life and God's glory all the way to the grave and back. But the first note of this incredible piece of music is here as Jesus comes up out of the waters and the heavens open and declare, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And think about this. Jesus, remember, when he returns in a victorious resurrection, he returns, we don't talk about this a lot, and I don't know why that is, he returns as a glorified, renovated human being. You remember this? I mean, Jesus is, it comes back human, and he eats, he drinks, but he also walks through walls. You know, he, he uh, can be touched, you can see his scars, but at the same time, he just uh, it can appear in different places very quickly. What we get a glimpse of and we don't fully understand is that Jesus, when he returns resurrected, comes back as a glorified, renovated human being. What I'm saying is his resurrected humanity far surpasses the old mortal kind that we know all so well. What's that about? In the resurrected Christ, we see the flawless reflection of the image of God through our humanity. If you will, we see in the resurrected Christ our humanity all grown up, perfected, what our lives are supposed to fully look like and become, God's glory translated through the glory of our humanity. By the way, I think this is what John is talking about before Jesus shows up to be baptized. If you had your Bible still open, you'll see a little bit of dialogue before Jesus shows up where John is telling everybody, this is nothing. I'm baptizing you with water. John says, but someone's coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I think John's talking about this. 
that not by any power inherent in us, but by grace alone, the free grace of the Son choosing to become human and identify with us, the free grace of the Father resurrecting Jesus and the grace of the Holy Spirit in binding us to Christ, a new kind of human existence is made possible and is offered to us. This is just like the first service. I'm looking out at some of you and some of you look like deer in headlights. Others of you, it's like I can tell you're trying to, what are you talking about? Because this isn't typically the gospel we hear, is it? This isn't typical the gospel, typically the gospel we hear. This isn't the one, the gospel we reflect to each other, right? In our presentation of the gospel, we skip right to our perceived end of the story. When we want to share the gospel, we say, Jesus died for my sins and defeated the death I deserve. We don't even mention Christmas. We don't even mention the baptism and all the rest. Just the cross and the resurrection. And again, I don't want to at all take away from the power of the cross or the significance of the resurrection. Those are not to be excluded. What I'm saying is when we exclude all the rest, when we focus just on the results, the effect of what Jesus did for us, we miss the relationship. We miss the fullness of the salvation Jesus offers us. My brothers and sisters, you got to hear this. God didn't come down in Christ just to give us stuff. Stuff like forgiveness and eternal life. God came down in Christ to give us himself. To be in relationship with us now and forever. God comes to be known. Jesus seeks for us to know him, not in a past tense way, but in the present tense, in the future tense, in terms of, again, the eternal now. If you listen carefully, if you're familiar with them at all, go on Spotify, get, make a playlist. The great African-American spirituals, if you listen to them carefully, the great African-American spirituals speak to Jesus directly. They talk to him as if he were right there with those who are singing. This is because to those who first gave us these songs, Jesus was. Jesus is with us here and now, tomorrow and forever. They didn't just believe in Jesus, they were following Christ. And so even though their slavery was still taking place, even though they were in chains, even though there was brutality and cruelty going on, they, and they, they knew the end would come, but it was not there. They were not so much fixated. They, they knew the results would come, but there wasn't the results they were fixated on. The freedom, what they were fixated on was the relationship. What kept them going was God showed up. God was with them and for them. And if you had that, you had everything. If you had that, the rest most certainly would follow. They didn't just believe in Jesus. They were following Christ. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. We have created, I don't know when this started. I almost want to do some research trying to figure out when did this start to happen, but we've created in the church this artificial distinction between believing in Jesus and following Christ. People literally will talk as if these two things are mutually exclusive. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I don't actually follow him, but I believe in him. As if somehow believing in Jesus and following Christ are separable. Maybe the reason we do this 
is because we've lost our sense of the eternal now when it comes to Christ. Let me put it this way. If if you're a deer in headlights, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Let me put it this way. Think about this for a second. Do we have to know who Jesus is in order to be saved? Or do we just have to believe Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected from the dead? Do we have to know who Jesus is in order to be saved? Or do we just have to believe that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected from the dead? Does it matter if I know who Jesus is so long as I believe in what he did for me? If our salvation is only about the results, if our salvation is only about the results, if our salvation is only about forgiveness and life beyond death, then we just need to believe in Jesus, accept what he's done for us without actually knowing who Jesus is and following him. But if our salvation is more than the results, more, not less, but more than just forgiveness and life beyond death, if our salvation is about our relationship with a God who comes to commune with us, to be known and to enable us to fully know ourselves and all the while remain in an ever-deepening, widening, and eternal fellowship with us, then knowing who Jesus is and following Christ are inseparable from believing in him. God comes to us in Christ, identifies with us through Jesus in order to offer us more than a clean slate or a hall pass to heaven. Through the special union of God and humanity in Christ that is ultimately revealed on the cross and culminates in the resurrection of Jesus, we are invited and enabled by grace alone to become truly human, to see our glorious humanity give rise the way God created it to be. This is a, could not be a more uh, salient point for us because as, if you've been with us in the fall, we unlaunched a whole new missional narrative and vision for the church. And the key word some of you love and some of you hate is flourish. We are about, the gospel is about flourishing. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where even people who like it are like, I don't get it. Because we have lived all of our lives, many of us, where the gospel is just about the benefits It's just about something that comes later. We're forgiven now, and so when we die, we'll live forever. Flourish. This vision of flourish is tapping into the fullness of the gospel, that it's not just about the benefits, it's about the relationship. Yes, forgiveness is the catalyst that, that, that enables us to enter into this life, but it's not just about a life we live later. It's about a life that gets changed and transformed now. It's about the eternal now. It's about being conformed, as the scriptures call it, to the image of Christ, the character of Christ being built in us through the Holy Spirit. And that's why John, Pastor John and I have decided that 2019 here at Grace is going to be, and it's not going to stop with 2019, but this is the, the, the kickoff point, is the year of knowing Jesus better. You know the benefits You know you're forgiven. You know that when you die, you have life beyond death. But I want to challenge you in 2019 and beyond to know Jesus better. 
And that's why next week we're starting a, 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 a sermon series on the Gospel of John. I would encourage you to pick a gospel and to read that gospel because that's what they're for, to know who Jesus is. And if you want to go beyond the gospel, pick Paul, pick Peter, read their letters. And don't just read their letters to get their theology. Read their letters to see who they knew who Jesus was. Who is Jesus to them? You want to really read a mind blower, read the letter to the Hebrews to know who Jesus is. But in this year of knowing Jesus better, that's why on Wednesday nights, that's the focus of our study together. I'm going to go through John, and our going through John is to how can we get to know Jesus better. I'm going to encourage you beyond that to focus on songs. If you listen to worship songs, if you do prayers, pray, focus on prayer exercises that engage Jesus personally, directly. Get a conversation partner. Grab someone, friend, maybe someone you want to build a friendship with, and make, grab that fellow disciple and make it a, road, on the, a road, on the, road to Emmaus experience. Grab that person and all year long, to, together, seek to know Jesus more. And then get together just like they did and go, man, was our heart not like coming out of our chest? Did our mind not explode when we were listening to Jesus? When we were getting to know this person named Christ? And last but certainly not least in this year of getting to know Jesus better, I come back to inviting you to Curcio. You will not have a better experience than going away on that weekend, away from your phone, away from work, away from all the other responsibilities, and experiencing the love of Christ so that you can get to know Jesus better. And the reason why we're pushing this, Pastor John and I, so hard is because back to the song, the song is Go Tell It on the mountain. We can't share this invitation. We can't go tell it on the mountain if we don't get this. My friends, modern evangelism falls short because we just try to share the benefits of the cross and the resurrection with people, the results. We, our, our line of evangelism is, hey, you know what? Jesus died for your sins, to forgive your sins. You know what? Jesus conquered death for you. And I know that some of us are going to gasp right now, perhaps. But to the person that's out there, that's like, okay, great. Who's Jesus? God did this for me? Which God are we talking about? The benefits, the results mean nothing if one doesn't appreciate the relationship. The relationship is what changes us. The results, the benefits are a manifestation. They're an extension of the relationship, but they mean nothing if you don't have the relationship. A lot of people give gifts at Christmas time. Maybe you received a gift like this. This is a coffee cup. If I were to give this as a gift to you, if you're really, really honest, you'd be like, oh, no, thanks, great, coffee cup, awesome. You probably have many of these in your house. You probably have to get rid of some of them. There was a time when this church gave them away. Coffee cup. Well, that, well, that, thanks for thinking of me. That's nice. If I just said, Bob, it's great. Look at it. Keeps your beverage hot. You, I mean, you could put pencils in there. I mean, it's great. Right? It's coffee cup. Seen one of those before. But if in giving that to you, I then told you who made it. I told you that someone who loves me, someone who specifically thought of me, made this. If I then went on and told you what they did to make this, how they apprenticed, and if any of you have done anything with pottery before, you know how the first things that you make with pottery turn out. <laughs> how they apprenticed, how they practiced, how they worked, how they sacrificed to make this. And then if I told you why they made it, not just so that I could get a drink, or hold pencils, 
but so that we could be connected. We're not geographically close. So that, so that this person could share a bit of themselves with me. So that I could be reminded every time I pick up this cup, every time I see it, that I'm not alone in this journey of faith. And that every time I take a drink from it, every time I use it, that we actually get closer. We draw close to each other. If, and if I told you even more than that how much I enjoyed this cup, that this, I have a ton of coffee cups too, but this is the one I choose in the morning. This is the one that I don't put in the dishwasher. I hand wash and put back and I don't put it stacked on the other cups because I don't want it to fall and break. I put it in a special place so it's going to be just fine. If I told you what this cup means to me, if I told you why it was made, how it was made, who made it for me, and then I said, and now I'm giving this, which means so much to me, to you. Even if you didn't drink coffee or tea, I guess you'd be liable to interact and treat this gift differently. It's not about the mug. It's about the relationship. It's about the person. If I'm giving something precious to me to you, it changes everything. And beloved, God has given something precious to us. He has given us himself. He has given us his son. He has given us himself, not just so we can go, hey, thanks for the forgiveness and the eternal life. Catch you later. He has given us to himself because he wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to go all the way to death and beyond. He wants to go the distance in relationship with us, not only so that we can know the fullness of who he is, the one who created us, but so that we could become the fullness of who we were created to be. That's the gospel we need to share. But in order to share that, we gotta share Jesus, who Jesus is, that this is God, that this is our creator who shows up, that this is our creator who comes to us, who identifies with us, who demonstrates his love and commitment to us by giving us not just forgiveness and eternal life, but giving all of himself to us. When we get that, when we share that, then the cross and the resurrection make sense. Go tell it on the mountain challenges us to view all Christmas songs as more than just a creative way of singing happy birthday to Jesus. Go Tell It on the Mountain declares that Jesus Christ is born today, that the glory of God became the glory of the human Jesus. And therefore, in our union with Christ, by grace and through the Holy Spirit, we too can become filled and forever express the glory of God throughout our humanity. In every color, in every race, in every ethnicity, in every gender, in every generation. This is, in the end, our salvation. This is the radical, revolutionary, and eternal gospel. And if we as Christians believe this is true, then knowing who Jesus is is worth shouting from the mountaintops, over the hills, and everywhere. And it means not just shouting about it. It means that we're called to get up off our feet, roll up our sleeves, and follow this same Christ into the eternal now, sharing both the hope and the realization of this new, emerging, glorified humanity, this coming kingdom to the ends of the earth. Because in this life, we encounter at the manger, on the cross, through the resurrection, and every step in between in this life, is the life that holds the universe together and makes us one. Amen.